I think this actually shows uh, that still social engineering is one of the most powerful ways to get uh, into a target. Uh, I mean, software protections are growing uh, more and more and systems are actually getting more secure. And so the cost of attacks uh, is actually uh, increasing. And so if I have to um, hack my way to a company through exploits, for example, uh, this will cost uh, uh, most often more than simply to try phishing. Uh, the fact that it's this is still one of the paths of uh, least resistance into a mm -hmm. company, basically, uh, both in terms of time that you need and in terms of uh, basically money. I'm George Comedy, and this is First Watch. Today's guest is Daniela Lain a PhD student and researcher in the Department of Computer Science at ETH Zurich. Social engineering attacks are resurgent, leaving a wave of breaches behind them. Take Two Interactive, American Airlines, Uber, Okta, Microsoft, Twilio, the list goes on. The historical solution to this problem has been security awareness training. But after decades of relying on this solution, do we have real data on its efficacy? Daniela is the lead author on a paper that caught my eye earlier this year on phishing simulations. What stood out immediately is that it was the largest and longest study of its kind. Instead of a lab or conducted among college students, this study was conducted in collaboration with a real Swiss corporation involving more than 14,000 employees over the course of 15 months. The results have serious implications for how we build resilience to this persistent attack vector. So let's get into it. Daniela Lain, welcome to First Watch. Thanks for having me. Yes. Yeah, so you are on because I caught wind of your study. I can't remember sort of what click path I got to, but I got to your uh, study, which is titled Fishing in Organizations, Findings from a Large-Scale and Long-Term Study. And I found the results fascinating. Um, I dug in on the way to Black Hat this year on the airplane. I kind of kept revisiting it. I was talking about the results with some others. Um, so I just want to start at the beginning, uh, which is to understand what inspired this particular study for you. Yeah, so we had this unique opportunity, I think, uh, as academics uh, to uh, collaborate with a large company from Switzerland. Uh, where my university is, and uh, um, this allows you to study how people react to phishing way more in detail than with simple laboratory study, which usually is, um, you would uh, do in role play settings, for example, or you would have a limited amount of people. And here instead, we could uh, um, basically observe uh, 15,000 people in their day-to-day -day jobs and in the way they interact with emails uh, and all other means of communication they have in the company. And uh, this unique opportunity means you can not only take a snapshot of how uh, a company reacts to phishing uh, uh, by measuring uh, through some kind of simulation, for example, through some exercise, mm -hmm. but you could also take some snapshots over time and to observe over time how people change and how people learn, for example, if given the proper um, teaching tools. So yeah. this opportunity allowed us to... Um, understand uh, so many factors basically not only how to teach people in a straightforward way for example with training but also with different clues different uh, uis for example um, different reporting techniques uh, and so that's how we uh, designed this uh, multi-dimensional so to call it uh, study 
Yeah, I was surprised not only by the scale and also pleased that it wasn't uh, a lab study that involved university students, which has its own biases. Um, but it was not only the the scale of the sample size, but it was also the time scale, right? It says that you went from July 2019 to October 2020, which is two things. One, it's very long, uh, which is good because we're going to talk about some of the, the findings and, you know, how sustainable they are over time. But also, you got a snapshot during arguably, you know, one of the heaviest technological shifts that we've recently experienced, which is the pandemic, right, which is a uh, dramatic change, probably in the volume of communication, uh, pre pandemic versus post pandemic. Um, and also, as we know, industry wide, um, the level of threat, you know, rapidly went up with uh, this time, COVID related phishing attacks and things like that. So yeah, both the the sample size and the time scale, I thought, were fascinating. Um, so that's that's what surprised me. Uh, I want to give you a moment to talk about your reflections and what surprised you the most about this particular investigation. So what we found the most surprising is uh, the reaction of people to um, the change in their lifestyle and then the change of communication that you mentioned. And of course, these made them exposed to way, way, way more phishing than before. I think I read some studies that talked about changing in order of magnitude even on the amount mm -hmm. of phishing that was sent to employees. And we're still seeing the effects right now. I mean, we hear of massive uh, breaches uh, due to some social engineering uh, yeah. almost every month now. <laughs> but um, so what we saw was that people um, somehow kept their good behavior as before. We didn't see a massive increase in the way they fell from the point of view we had with our work. What we instead observed is that unfortunately also uh, people were not getting better. And uh, mm -hmm. what surprised me the most was to test uh, um, one of the most common ways of training people that is basically uh, using phishing tests not only to measure um, uh, how your organization looks like in a given moment, but also to take the opportunity to teach something to whoever's failing, phishing test, uh, right? By, for example, presenting them some training material uh, at the mm -hmm. moment uh, when they fail. So at the moment when they uh, click on a link on an email that is just a simulation and then they get redirected to a website uh, where maybe they enter their credentials. And that's, of course, uh, um, managed by the IT of the company. And at mm -hmm. that moment, then you can say, hey, wait, you failed, you failed for a test. Let me redirect you to some training material. Let me um, make sure that you're taking the time to go over these. And hopefully this mistake becomes a teachable moment. And what we saw, we saw was that uh, um, this was not really helping actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's for sure the most surprising thing because uh, it was even detrimental, right? And that's, um, that's the main um, negative finding, I would say, of our study. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we'll get into that. I, I agree. Um, I also wanted to note that the study was good about sampling across the organization. So this involved individuals who use computers maybe more day to day, so they are exposed to more 
danger and you know ideally they have um kind of a higher level of guardedness versus people who may use computers in their day-to-day work only intermittently um but there are some key findings that i found interesting we're going to return to that um, because i think it's the standout finding from the study but yeah i'm going to start a little bit more tactically i thought it was interesting that you your study discovered that there's really no efficacy change in whether you know, the headers that are injected into emails are very general, like this is a suspicious email versus a more detailed injection, which is this is a suspicious email because it comes from this domain, which is out, you know, like the long explanation, in other words, doesn't really matter, at least statistically uh, significant way um, from your study. Did, did you have any reaction to that? Was that a surprise? Um, well, yeah, a bit, I would say, because, I mean, uh, we were hoping uh, uh, to observe some sort of learning effect by putting mm-hmm. more context into uh, these type of warnings. Um, so I think that, uh, let's say, the finding that both the warnings were uh, effective uh, is expected somehow. So we expected to see mm-hmm. some positive reaction to both because, of course, uh, um, no clue is worse than you know getting some clues. So of course, just saying right. "Hey, be careful" might already uh, prime some people into saying, "Okay, let's wait, let's double think this, and let's uh, uh, take a step back, maybe right, and be more careful than I would be." Uh, but on the other side, uh, providing more information, uh, our hope was to observe uh, uh, that this was going to stick. Uh, to people. So for example, telling them, hey, be careful, check if the email you're seeing uh, is actually the email that sent you this message, right? Uh, Or if there's some sort of uh, uh, misguidance uh, um, in the way your software is displaying your address, uh, right? Mm -hmm. Or hey, be careful, this target link is uh, pretending to send you to some domain you expect, but instead is taking you somewhere else. And the idea was that these would stick, hopefully, and then make these people more resilient. And instead, we didn't see uh, whoever was subjected to detailed warning uh, to get more careful over time, just the mm-hmm. same amount, let's say, of carefulness, of carefulness of um, warnings. So I think this requires more careful studies, though, because what we tried was to simply uh, provide more more context uh, in these warnings. Uh, while there are a lot of studies that focus on, for example, uh, conveying this information more contextually, so trying to display these warnings closer to where they should be, or mm-hmm. trying to convey this information in new ways, uh, uh, for example, by uh, having some landing pages uh, before you actually go to some link. So there are a lot of studies on these. So I don't think this means uh, giving less information is better i but giving information in that way doesn't really work uh, over time as we would expect uh, yeah it may have something to do this is total armchair analysis but i wonder if it's because of the you know the volume of email coming in you know they can read that but it's it's like a retention thing you know they it's after they read it okay understand it's a suspicious uh, report move on you know work over here do my activities oh another email you know it's just like that's not going to retain because their mind has had to switch gears so many times that by the time they 
get to the next one, it's almost like resetting from the start. Um, that's just a, a maybe a cognitive uh, process that that isn't fully laid out. Um, I thought one of the positive findings from the study, however, was the what you call the sustainability of crowdsourced reporting of phishing. So this is when you empower the workforce to do the reporting, uh, usually with a button directly in the email client, you know, oh, this looks suspicious. And I, I want to key in on the word sustainability, because I thought that was very apt that you weren't just measuring kind of AB the efficacy of if people report, but given the long term nature of this study over a year, I thought it was important that you asked the question, I mean, essentially, do people get tired of, of reporting repeatedly? And it, it seems from the study that they don't. And I think that there's some glimmer of hope there that by using that crowdsourced intelligence, there's, um, you know, there's maybe a greater enterprise resilience. Could you speak to that a little bit? Um, yeah, uh, I agree with what you said, actually, because uh, um any mechanism that you deploy, you want to make sure that over time your people don't get tired, right? Mm -hmm. As you said. And uh, over 15 months, we didn't see any decrease actually. Uh, if any, we saw a small increase at the very end of the study, at the very end of the 15 months when we um, sent uh, um, simulated emails more often. Uh, in the span of a few weeks instead of more diluted. So we saw people, of course, reporting more due to the fact that, of course, they were receiving more suspicious stuff. Mm. Uh, but we saw that a lot of people weren't reporting that often, of course. So you might expect uh, your average employee to maybe report uh, three, four, five over the course of these 15 months. We observed them. Uh, but we saw that there's a lot of very dedicated users instead that understand that actually reporting um, is a very good defense mechanism, right? So I think a positive finding of our study is that employees should be encouraged to use the report function as a way to check when they're really unsure, right? Because automated mechanisms that exist before uh, the mailboxes of, of employees, they can fail. And uh, it's always an arms race between um, these uh, phishing prevention mechanisms that use machine learning, that use rules, for example, and they sit before uh, users and then the fishers that keep on trying to find ways to evade them. So, of course, if you encourage people when in doubt to report it, you might have to handle a bit more traffic to your IT, right? But what we did and what we tested is uh, you could also run some more specialized tools, for example, because now due to the fact that it's getting reported, you might... Uh, um, you have already suspicion on that. So mm. for example, if there's some attachment, you can uh, give it more powerful analysis, for example, you can use uh, more advanced technology or you can use humans. Uh, and then anyway, you might see some more traffic to your IT. Uh, we didn't observe that uh, too much in the company we collaborated with, um, but uh, at the same time, you're encouraging people to be more careful and more cautious and uh, to basically ask for help to IT uh, in case they are, they are unsure. And this seems to work. And I think it's uh, very nice uh, news for us, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, important. I would, I would be very interested as a 
a former anthropology student to understand, you know, what are the cultural uh, forces at work there? Are there some you know, areas of the world where the workforce feels kind of more of this collective whole versus others? And, you know, how can those um, controls be adapted? But no, that's a very good point. Um, so I want to now turn around to that I think blockbuster finding, if I may be so bold, which is that the over time, you know, the fishing resilience doesn't really change. And that, you know, the key finding being that there was sadly a propensity to click more on links, um, which is somewhat disheartening. But it's important to learn that uh, through these studies. So I am keen to understand what's going on there, or I guess, to be fair, what is your working hypothesis as to what may be affecting uh, that particular finding? So unfortunately, the second you said, so we only have some hypothesis. We are still mm -hmm. testing <laughs> to try to understand why uh, this is happening. So with this first study, we observed it. And unfortunately, we totally did not expect it, right? So we didn't mm -hmm. really have the means afterwards to um, try to answer these questions. So we have uh, some hypotheses we are trying to work on. So just to recap, the main idea here is that this type of training that apparently doesn't work is uh, some material that you get in the moment you fail a phishing test. So basically, in the moment uh, you are clicking on something, uh, and you put your password where you shouldn't, uh, and this was a simulation, then you get some uh, explanation of uh, uh, why the email should have been, uh, well, first of all, that it was a test, and then why the email should have been looked, uh, uh, why it was looking fishy, and for mm -hmm. example, why the website was looking fishy and what happened, and you could take uh, some, uh, uh, you could check some video and take some online um, questionnaire to check your understanding, for example. So there was some training material here, and apparently this uh, over time was making people, as you said, to click more on these simulation links. Mm -hmm. So of course, the first hypothesis, which I'm not really sure it applies honestly though, uh, is that people might be taking these not so seriously. So people that actually get uh, the training, then they um, might be inclined to think that every uh, phishing link they receive is actually some test. Uh, and then they mm. click on that to just, I don't know, annoy management or to enter <laughs> false credentials or whatnot, which is not a behavior that you would uh, have uh, the, in your company, right? Uh, mm. I'm not super sure this is the case. I, I think something has to do with the timing of this training. So... If you think about it, the moment where you might be more vulnerable to uh, actually falling for uh, phishing is, as you said before, um, when you have 150 emails lined up after the one you are actually reading. Mm -hmm. And so you are working under time pressure, you're maybe just back from holidays, you have your full inbox looking at you, and then you simply don't have time. And of course, uh, um, one of the main explanations that a uh, lot of also academic works give uh, on why people fall for phishing is of course uh, being on a rush. Mm -hmm. And so if someone's already on a rush, I don't really think uh, giving them training uh, in that moment is the best moment, right? So maybe this is actually simply um, 
not happening in the right moment uh, and this may be maybe also getting misunderstood uh, it could be that some people think that uh, uh, they were protected from a real attack instead of a simulation uh, and then they might think that they can be more careless because anyway the company is protecting them somehow for example mm-hmm. and uh, this might also be negative right so i think these are all interesting hypotheses that uh, uh, need to be tested uh, but for which I don't have an answer yet, unfortunately. No, it's it's well worth exploring. I think this is a, an intractable problem and has been for a long time, right? We have uh, thrown training at the fishing issue for, what is it, 30 years now. And uh, as you alluded to earlier, and we'll get into in a second, um, with the wave of social engineering attacks, uh, not only email, but targeting outside of email, um, you know, something new is needed. And and these studies are, are part of that journey to, to find something that's more effective. Um, I am curious to understand what your collaborator, the company has taken away from the study. Did they kind of metabolize these findings to try and alter their own processes? Are they involved in the next set of studies? I mean, how did that work? I think it's understood from the paper that that you and your fellow researchers get the benefit of, of working at scale and working with them kind of in a live work environment. But I'm also interested how they took uh, the findings from the study and, and tried to apply them to their organization for greater resilience. So I think one of the nice takeaways they got out of the study is, uh, as we discussed before, um, getting uh, um, a good dry run of the whole uh, reporting infrastructure, uh, Mm -hmm. trying to scale up from uh, these 15,000 employees we could uh, uh, collaborate with uh, to the whole uh, company and uh, managing the growth in uh, uh, workload, for example, of IT in a sustainable way, right? And getting some confirmation that actually this works uh, and this was working from that for them, because then we observed uh, um, the amount of uh, uh, phishing that we, we could have prevented somehow uh, with fast reaction from these reports, uh, and we saw that this would. Uh, um, basically lead to uh, thousands of uh, phishing attempts to get blocked within minutes, for example. So I think they got this very positive outcome. And for the fact that the way they were employing training did not really work, I think this means that they, well, they now know that they need to explore new ways to uh, train people to try to mitigate these. And they also got a nice understanding of uh, who is more at risk in terms of, uh, for example, different demographics and in terms of different uh, Mm -hmm. categories of workers. And uh, uh, that also helps uh, in order to do some more targeted uh, training, for example. Yeah. Um, Do you have uh, any ideas or, I guess, thoughts on what are the implications of this particular large-scale simulation for, you know, enterprise teams at large in their defense strategies. And I ask, you know, in the context, again, of this wave of social engineering, you know, if, you know, post breach, you'll hear a lot of like, okay, well, we need to double down on training, we need to do this, that and the other, we need more and more training. And, and I, I remain skeptical as to whether that is necessarily 
the you know the silver bullet that's going to fix this problem because again we've been dealing with it for decades um what could other companies take away from this particular study you know i know it's early days in, in the course of your investigation but you know, how could they how could they look at this and, and think about different ways to to educate i guess the first their workforce but also to build in actual controls and resilience um, where training falls short well, this is a very complicated question, right? <laughs> yes, fair enough. I I wish I had a very good answer, right? <laughs> no, but but yeah, thanks for actually asking it, right? So I think this shows that basically, actually, this confirms uh, if you observe over time with this type of uh, uh, measurement tests that. Uh, companies can do by using uh, uh, phishing tests uh, that anyway, um, they remain very good ways of uh, measuring how your company is looking like uh, in mm -hmm. terms of phishing vulnerability, right? I don't think our, our any of our results uh, uh, really show that they don't work to measure. I think it's just about uh, whether they happen in a good moment to teach. Um, but anyway, um, I think this shows that over time, no matter how hard you try uh, to teach them, uh, eventually a non-trivial part of your workforce, uh, if continuously exposed to phishing, will fall uh, for it. Uh, and as we saw very recently with uh, hacks happening, uh, even in the last month, uh, for example, even Uber, right? You just need to mm -hmm. fish uh, one single employee and sometimes you have too much access and you can find uh, uh, for example, a set of hard-coded credentials with which to just exploit the whole company, right? And so this means that uh, you have to be ready uh, for the event that some of your employees' credentials will be stolen at some point by some bad actor. And so then there are ways to mitigate that uh, that don't necessarily rely on people, multi-factor authentication, for example, um, and having uh, a more modern uh, authentication means uh, from FIDO, and of course, while managing properly who can access what in a company, right? But this is uh, somehow security hygiene that uh, I'm sure most uh, people follow anyway. Uh, but yeah, to be ready that some credentials will be stolen. And uh, when this happens, you don't want uh, to be hit too hard. Absolutely. And I, I think you raised a good point in a particular phrasing, which is the non-trivial part of your company. And one of the nuances of the TTPs and these new social engineering attacks looks to be to specifically target, you know, contractors, third party outsourced resources. So not frontline employees, they're kind of going around to what we could call maybe ancillary employees. And, and maybe there's an issue there where those peripheral uh, workforces aren't receiving the same training as, you know, the, the core team. You know, and, and they are a weak spot there. So in terms of your study, I thought that's what was valuable is that you're, you're going across the category. So even if you're somebody who works in the warehouse who, yes, you use a computer, but you don't use it as much as, say, accounting or accounts payable, but you're being exposed to that level of training because, it, you know, those are the more vulnerable parts of the organization in terms of levels of awareness and, you know, how, how guarded they are. Um, but I want to turn now to kind of what's next um, and also ask you a, a devil's advocate question. So 
you are a researcher and a PhD student now, but you have a hacker past, and I want to reduce the stigma of that word hacker. You know, you've come to the U.S. for DEF CON. So kind of switching your hats from the academic researcher to your hacker mindset, is there anything in your particular study that that you could think of ways to exploit or you know, how would you use that information um, to hack your way around uh, protections? Well, um, I think this actually shows uh, that still social engineering is one of the most powerful ways to get uh, into a target, mm-hmm. uh, right? Because, um, I mean, software protections are growing uh, more and more and systems are actually getting more secure. And so the cost of attacks is actually uh, increasing. And so if I have to um, hack my way to a company through exploits, for example, uh, this will cost uh, uh, most often more than simply to try phishing, uh, maybe even at scale, right? Uh, um, some part of your uh, workforce, uh, because then if I can get into, then maybe here at that point, I'm already in uh, a uh, position where there are maybe a bit less defenses, uh, where maybe there are some more outdated targets, uh, uh, where it's basically easier to then escalate your way through uh, the company. And so I, I think this basically gives a good indication of um, the fact that it's this is still one of the paths of uh, least resistance into a mm-hmm. company, basically, uh, both in terms of time that you need and in terms of uh, basically money. Yeah. Yeah, I, I worry the most about... Um, these new phishing as a service, like the the commodified kits so that actors that are less sophisticated can dial up um, their phishing operations either to greater levels of sophistication, like using reverse proxies, or just, you know, the fact that these phishing kits have a SaaS platform, a UI, I want to phish Google credentials, I want to get Mac credentials here. You know, it's that level of... um, broad-based and broad access to those tools is, I think, what frightens me the most. Because if you think of it as being easier to deploy phishing exploits, and we now know that phishing is remains the highest uh, and most efficacious vector, that's I think that's the worry for me, is that the volume will just go up exponentially uh, and from multiple directions. Um, but I don't want to. I don't want to end on a negative note. <laughs> I want to uh, turn our attention here towards the end, uh, Daniela, to ask what's next. You know, you're a researcher, so what is the next area of investigation? Is it continuation of this study, or or are there other interests ahead? No, actually, we are still exploring these. Uh, so, as I said before, um, we don't really understand why giving training uh, at the moment of. Uh, getting fished basically uh, doesn't work. So we are trying to understand uh, uh, if the time is wrong, if the delivery is wrong, if the intentions are not properly communicated, if this needs to happen basically um, after in a more um, classroom way, for example, or if it's good to keep it automated, but it simply needs to happen in a moment where there's more quiet, for example, Mm. for whoever fell for phishing. And we're also trying to understand a bit more how um, 
different UIs can actually help uh, uh, people understand what they are doing, right? So we're trying to understand how to catch uh, people's attention, for example, in the moment they're trying to interact with something that looks uh, weird. So basically uh, trying to work against these uh, uh, rash factor that is behind mm. uh, so many uh, failed phishing tests, basically. Okay. Well, uh, Daniela, I want to thank you for the time. Uh, and I thank you for the research. And I would be very interested um, in any forthcoming papers. But thank you again for taking the time uh, to sit with us and, and walk us through it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thanks for having me again. That's it for First Watch today. Many thanks to my guest, Daniela Lain. To hear more interviews with leaders and more spotlight episodes on cybersecurity newcomers, subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber with original music by Mattia Cefaletti and production help from Jamil Mafi. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong.